Chapter 13, Wheelbarrow. Next morning, Monday, after disposing of the embalmed head to the barber for a block, I settled my own and a comrade's bill, using, however, my comrade's money. The grinning landlord, as well as the boarders, seemed amazingly tickled at the sudden friendship which had sprung up between me and Quigqueg, especially as Peter Coffin's cock-and-bull stories about him had previously so much alarmed me concerning the very person whom I now accompanied with. We borrowed a wheelbarrow, and embarking our things, including my own poor carpet bag, and Quigwag's canvas sack and hammock, away we went down to the Moss, the little Nantucket packet schooner moored at the wharf. As we were going along, the people stared, not at Quigwag so much, for they were used to seeing cannibals like him in their streets but at seeing him and me upon such confidential terms. But we heeded them not, going along wheeling the barrow by turns, and Quigquag now and then stopping to adjust the sheath on his harpoon barbs. I asked him why he carried such a troublesome thing with him ashore, and whether all whaling ships did not find their own harpoons. To this, in substance, he replied that though what I hinted was true enough, yet he had a particular affection for his own harpoon, because I was of assured stuff, well tried in many a mortal combat and deeply intimate with the hearts of whales. In short, like many inland reapers and mowers, who go into the farmer's meadows armed with their own scythes, though in no wise obliged to furnish them, even so Quigquag, for his own private reasons, preferred his own harpoon. Shifting the barrow from my hand to his, he told me a funny story about the first wheelbarrow he had ever seen. It was in Sag Harbor. The owners of his ship, it seemed, had lent him one in which to carry his heavy chest to his boarding house. Not to seem ignorant about the thing, though, in truth, he was entirely so. Concerning the precise way in which to manage the barrel, Quigquig put his chest upon it, lashes it fast, and then shoulders and barrel marches up the wharf. Why, said I, Quigquig, you might have known better than that, one would think. Didn't the people laugh? Upon this he told me another story. The people of his island Rokovoko, it seems, at their wedding feast expressed the fragrant water of young coconuts in a large stained calabash, like a punch bowl, and in this punch bowl always from the great central ornament on the bridal mat where the feast is held. Now a grand merchant ship once touched at Rokovo, and its commander, from all accounts a very stately punctilious gentleman, at least for a sea captain, this commander was invited to the wedding feast of Quigquag's sister, a pretty young princess just turned of ten. Well, when all the wedding guests were assembled at the bride's bamboo cottage, this captain marches in, and being assigned the post of honor, placed himself over against the punch bowl, and between the high priest and his majesty the king, Quigquag's father. For grace being said, for those people have their grace as well as we, Though Quigquag told me that unlike us, who at such times look downward to their platters, they, on the contrary, copying ducks, glance upward to the great giver of all feasts. Grace, I say, being said, the high priest opens the banquet by the immemorial ceremony of the island, that is, dipping his consecrated and consecrating fingers into the bowl before the blessed beverage circulates. Seeing himself placed next to the priest, the noting ceremony and thinking himself being captain of a ship, as having plain precedence over a mere island king, especially in the king's own house, the captain coolly proceeds to wash his hands in the punch bowl, taking it as, I suppose, for a huge finger glass. Now, says Quigquag, what do you think now? Didn't our people laugh? 
At last, passage paid, our luggage safe, we stood on board the schooner. Hoisting sail, it glided down the Acushnet River. On one side, New Bedford rose in terraces of sheets, their ice-covered trees all glittering in the clean, cold air. Huge hills and mountains of casks and casks were piled upon her wharves, and side by side the world-wandering whale-ship lay silent and safely moored at last. While from others came a sound of carpenters and coopers, with blended noises of fires and forges to melt the pitch, all betokening that new cruises were on the start, that one most perilous and long voyage ended only begins a second, and a second ended only begins a third, and so on, forever and for yea. Such is the endlessness, yea, the intolerableness of all earthly efforts. Gaining the more open water, the bracing breeze waxed fresh. The little moss tossed the quick foam from her bows, as a young colt his snortings. How I stuffed that tartar air! How I spurned that turnpike earth! That common highway all over dented with the marks of slavish heels and hoofs, and turned me to admire the magnanimity of the sea which will permit no records. At the same foam mountain, Quigqueg seemed to drink and reel with me. His dusky nostrils swelled apart. He showed his filled and pointed teeth. On, on we flew, and our offing gained. The moss did homage to the blast, ducked and dived her brows as a slave before the sultan. Sideways leaning, we sideways darted, every rope yarn tingling like a wire, and the two tall masts buckling like Indian canes in land tornadoes. So full of this reeling scene were we, as we stood by the plumbing bowsprit, that from some time we did not notice the jeering glances of the passengers like a luber-like assembly, who marveled that two fellows being should be so companionable, as though a white man were anything but dignified than a whitewashed negro. But there were some boobies and bumpkins there, who by their intense greenness must have come from the heart of the center of all verdure. Quig Quag caught one of these young saplings, mimicking him behind his back. I thought the bumpkin's hour of doom was come. Dropping his harpoon, the brawny savage caught him in his arm, and by an almost miraculous dexterity of strength, set him high up bodily into the air, and then slightly tapping him stern in mid-somerset, the fellow landed with bursting lungs upon his feet, while Quigqueg, turning his back upon him, lighted his tomahawk pipe and passed it to me for a puff. "'Captain, captain!' yelled the bumpkin, running towards the officer. "'Captain, captain, here's the devil!' "'Hello, you sir!' cried the captain, a grunt rib off the sea, stalking up to Quigquag. What in thunder do you mean by that? Don't you know you might have killed the chap? What him say, said Quigquag as he mildly turned to me. He say, said I, that you came near Killy, that man there, pointing to the still shivering greenhorn. Killy, cried Quigquag, twisting his tattooed face into an unearthly expression of disdain. Aye, him a bevy smally fishy. Quigquag no killy, no smally fishy. Quigquag killy big whale. Look you, roared the captain. I'll killy you, you cannibal, if you try any more of your tricks aboard here, so mind your eye. But it so happened just then that it was high time for the captain to mind his own eye. The prodigious strain upon the mainsail had parted, and the weather sheet, 
and the tremendous boon was now flying from side to side, completely sweeping the entire after part of the deck. The poor fellow whom Quigqueg had handed so rough was swept overboard. All hands were in a panic, and to attempt snatching at the boom to stay it seemed madness. It flew from right to left and back again, almost in one ticking of a watch, and every instant seemed on the point of snapping into splinters. Nothing was done, and nothing seemed capable of being done. Those on deck rushed toward the bows and stood eyeing the boom as if it were a lower jaw of an exasperated whale. In the midst of this consternation, Quigquig dropped deftly to his knees and crawled under the path of the boom, whipped, hold by a rope, secured one end of the bulwark, and then flinging to the other like a lasso, caught it round the boom as it swept under his head, and at the next jerk the spar was that trapped, and all was safe. The schooner was run into the wind, and while the hands were clearing away the sternboat, Quigquag, stripped to the waist, darted from the side with a long living arc of a leap. From three minutes or more he had been swimming like a dog, throwing his long arms straight out before him, and by turns revealing his brawny shoulders through the freezing foam. I looked at the grand and glorious fellow, but saw no one to be saved. The greenhorn had gone down. Shooting himself perpendicularly from the water, Quigquag now took an instant's glance around him, and seeming to see just how matters were, dived down and disappeared. A few minutes more, and he rose again, one arm still striking out, and with the other dragging a lifeless form. The boat soon picked them up. The poor bumpkin was restored. All hands voted Quigquag a noble trump, and Captain begged his pardon. From that hour, I clove to Quigquag like a barnacle, yea, till poor Quigquag took his long last dive. Was there ever such unconsciousness? He did not seem to think that he at all deserved a medal for the humane and magnanimous societies. He only asked for water, fresh water, something to wipe the brine off. That done, he put on dry clothes, lighted his pipe, and leaned against the bulwarks, and mildly eyeing those around him, seemed to be saying to himself, It's a mutual joint-stock world in all meridians. We cannibals must help these Christians.'